Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll visit the Atlantic Center for the Arts in New Smyrna. For a small town like New Smyrna Beach, I don't think anyone really uh, envisioned happening what continues to happen here today. And the opportunities for artists to come together, to live and work, to exchange ideas, continues to have a worldwide impact. We'll discuss the seminal war journals of J.W. Phelps. As we read through the journal, you kind of see this evolution in Phelps' mindset, how he understands the plight or, or at, at the very least empathizes with some of the native peoples that, uh, that they're removing. And we'll look at the history of mosquito control in the Sunshine State. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. That's Renee Fleming singing the aria Once There Was a Golden Bird from the John Corigliano opera The Ghosts of Versailles. Corigliano composed part of that work while he was an artist-in-residence at the Atlantic Center for the Arts. Tucked away on 67 acres of pine and palmetto forest just outside of New Smyrna Beach is the Atlantic Center for the Arts. Since opening its doors in 1982, the center has brought together diverse groups of composers, writers, playwrights, choreographers, and visual artists to work among the trees overlooking the tidal estuary Turnbull Bay. Nancy Loudon Norman is co-executive director of the Atlantic Center for the Arts. Atlantic Center for the Arts was founded in 1977 by Doris Leeper, who was an artist, environmentalist, visionary, who had the idea of a place where people artists working in different disciplines could come together and live and work in a natural environment. Jim Frost is also co-executive director of the Atlantic Center for the Arts, working to preserve Doris Leeper's legacy. She was at an artist-in-residence community in North Carolina and was struck by the fact that there were so many wonderful artists on the campus at the same time, yet no one was talking to each other. And so she came back to Florida and had this idea some call it a crazy idea, that she would create her own artist community here in New Smyrna Beach, and it would be interdisciplinary, and the whole idea would be that you would bring these artists from different disciplines together, and that they, based on the setup of the grounds and the setup of the program, they would be, in a way, corralled to interact, to collaborate, to discuss, to exchange ideas, and really that's, we're one of the only artist communities in the nation to work in this particular model. In 1961, Doris Leeper moved to Eldora, Florida on the Indian River Lagoon. 
she became very active in Florida's environmental movement, fighting to preserve our natural resources. Leaper's efforts helped lead to Congress declaring the 58,000-acre Canaveral National Seashore an environmentally protected area in 1975. As an artist, Leeper is best known for her large-scale, site-specific modern sculpture. Her work has gained international recognition, with more than 100 of her pieces displayed by museums, corporations, and private collectors. Doris Leeper's great success as an artist was sometimes overshadowed by the role she played in the creation of the Canaveral National Seashore and her establishment of the Atlantic Center for the Arts. Doris Leeper was a force to be reckoned with. Uh, she was raised in Piedmont, North Carolina, and attended college at Duke University, where she originally intended to be a pre-med major, hence her nickname, Doc. Um, she went on to major in art, and really a woman of her time in the 50s became uh, an, an amazing artist at a time when you know women weren't so prevalent in the field. She attended other artist communities where typically if you were a writer, you were working at a writing residency. If you were a painter, you were working at a painting residency. And she had the idea for people from different disciplines to come together to live and work and share ideas. And that's really how the idea for ACA blossomed. She was an incredible woman. I, she got a lot accomplished in her lifetime and I think did a lot of amazing things for this area, Volusia County especially. Obviously, she had a great love of the environment and a great passion for the arts, and really Atlantic Center for the Arts is a combination of those two passions of hers. You know, all the stories about Doc revolve around her tenacity, her ability to raise money, to draw blood from a stone, if you will. Um, and so that's really a lot of her legacy is this really strong and powerful woman, but Really, the true legacy is her um, gift of the environment to Volusia County when you're talking about Canaveral National Seashore or the Doris Leeper Spruce Creek Preserve or um, the Atlantic Center for the Arts Complex. When Doris Leeper founded the Atlantic Center for the Arts, she made sure that the buildings would not disrupt the natural setting of the site. She approved a design that blended in with the natural environment. The wooden studios, galleries, workspace, performance areas, and artist residences are connected with boardwalks winding through the forest. The design of the buildings, the layout of our campus here uh, was centered around the environment. She worked early with the architect Will Miller, who moved buildings from the original site plan, who said, this tree needs to be saved, we need to move a walkway. Um, was very much part of her aesthetic. Our campus is attached by raised wooden boardwalks. Um, the environment is naturally protected here. There are no cutbacks to any of our studios. So she worked very closely with the city of New Smyrna Beach um, in ensuring that you know this natural scrub oak um, was able to stay an important part of the facility here. Well, I can tell you one thing. Our insurance company is not happy. They would prefer that all the buildings not be plopped into nature, if you will. Um, but, you know, the stories about Doris Leeper are that as each, as the buildings were being constructed, each tree was handpicked to stay or go by her based on where the buildings would go. And so really trying to tune in the buildings to the environment was a huge part of the project. And you'll notice that all the buildings are built about 30 inches off the ground and raised up so that all the wildlife can still continue to move around the property unencumbered by man's interference with nature. But I think really with the combination of the architecture, the combination of the site, um, it was really a fabulous job of kind of combining these buildings with nature so that really everything is seamless. And you can be 
30 feet away from another building and potentially not know it due to the cover and the natural environment that's still here. The Master Artist in Residence program at the Atlantic Center for the Arts brings in groups of accomplished artists to mentor and work with selected mid-career artists in their field. The multi-week residency program often results in fascinating collaborations. For example, poets may write verses to accompany an original musical composition the dancers perform to. The Atlantic Center for the Arts has hosted a distinguished list of master artists who have worked and collaborated there. They include playwright Edward Albee, composer John Corigliano, United States Poet Laureate Howard Nemirov, choreographer Tricia Brown, photographer William Wegman, sculptor Dwayne Hansen, novelist B.B. Moore Campbell, and poet Sonia Sanchez, to name just a few. I think one of the things that Atlantic Center does really, really well is that we'll work with artists who have won the Pulitzer Prize and are incredibly famous within their niche discipline, and we'll work with someone who is incredibly famous to 500 or 1,000 people in their particular niche of a discipline. You know, for me, some of the personal highlights, um, you know, authors like Carl Hyacin coming through the program, um, graphic designer David Carson, author Douglas Copeland, I mean, musicians, we've had so many great musicians. David Lang, the composer who recently won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, just a, an incredible list. Hard to really single one out in particular or even come up with a highlight reel because really they're all essentially their own highlight reel. Each residency is really special. We have hosted countless Pulitzer Prize winners, Grammy Award winners, MacArthur Genius Award fellows. For a small town like New Smyrna Beach, I don't think anyone really uh, envisioned happening what continues to happen here today. And the opportunities for artists to come together, to live and work, to exchange ideas, continues to have a worldwide impact. Doris Leeper believed that the natural setting of the Atlantic Center for the Arts would be inspiring to the many artists in residence as she herself was inspired by nature. It's been that way from the very beginning. Uh, Doc moved to New Smyrna Beach, which I think reminded her very much of the Outer Banks of North Carolina, where she spent time as a child. Um, at that time, she had a small house on Riverside Drive before she discovered what's now Canaveral National Seashore and bought a property there for $10,000 called Capers Acres. Very much influenced her work and I think really was a, a time for her to realize the role that she could play in preserving the environment and the land. So when she was initially looking for land to uh, begin Atlantic Center for the Arts, it was these 10 acres uh, down a rutted dirt road based right on Turnbull Bay, one of the most pristine estuaries uh, in the world, that really drew her to this location. It's a little outside of town, as you know, um, and now we're based on 67 acres. So very much the environment is a big part of what we do here. When Doris envisioned this property, she envisioned a lot of buildings connecting through these boardwalk systems, but also the artists um, having to walk through nature in order to get where they're going. And so in this really peaceful, serene setting, you have these pathways that lead you around the corner into another vista that uncovers a new building where another artist might be working. And when the architects created that complex, I think they were really thinking about the nature, the natural Florida environment. You notice that a lot of the buildings are in the cracker style in a way with these metal roofs and wooden construction. And so um, I think it's all part of the big plan that she had. And 
Uh, obviously, she was very tuned into the buildings um, originally built in the 80s and was also heavily involved in the Leaper Studio Complex construction uh, in the mid-90s. Doris Leeper died in 2000, one year after being inducted into the Florida Artists Hall of Fame. Leeper's creative vision and passion for protecting Florida's natural environment live on today in her art, the Canaveral National Seashore, and the Atlantic Center for the Arts. We spoke with Nancy Loudon-Norman and Jim Frost, co-executive directors of the Atlantic Center for the Arts. Opera composer John Carigliano was one of many master artists to work there. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. You can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org, where you can acquire great books about Florida history and culture, find out about upcoming events like the Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium, listen to archived editions of this program, get the latest information about the television series version of Florida Frontiers, and much more. While you're there, you can support all of our educational outreach efforts by becoming a member of the Florida Historical Society. Find out more at myfloridahistory.org. That's a recording of Billy Bowlegs III from 1954 performing the Seminole Alligator Dance. Bowlegs was a descendant of one of the leaders in the Third Seminole Indian War. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Ben, you have here some fascinating documents from the Seminole Indian Wars, but before we look at them, tell us about this extended conflict and its impact on Florida. Well, we're talking specifically about the Second Seminole War, and that was the second in three conflicts that involved the U.S. federal government and the Seminole tribe of Florida that was living uh, in Florida. Now, the Seminoles are descended from uh, Creek Indians that were living further north in Georgia and Alabama, moved into Florida uh, around the 18th century, and kind of created their own autonomous regions. Now, uh, when Florida became a U.S. territory in 1821, there was a lot of pressure on the federal government to remove a lot of the Indian tribes, not only from Florida, but from the greater southeastern United States. Uh, that pressure came from Anglo settlers who were uh, kind of slowly moving into what was uh, historically these Native American lands. Uh, in 1830, President Andrew Jackson passed uh, the Indian Removal Act, which essentially dissolved any kind of title that these Native tribes held on the property, essentially gave them the right to forcefully remove uh, Native Americans from their land. Uh, now, the, the 1830 legislation led to a series of armed conflicts, most notably the, the Seminole Wars in Florida, uh, but also uh, Creek Wars. There were armed conflicts with the Cherokees, with the Choctaws, the Chickasaw Indians as 
as well. And uh, right in the middle of it were all of these federal regular troops. A lot of young men who had never been to the southeastern United States had never been to Florida. Florida was still very unpopulated. It was a, kind of a wild frontier. And here you have thousands of young men coming into the state, and they're involved in this uh, forceful removal of the native peoples of these uh, areas and, and shipping them out west to the Indian territories. We commonly refer to the, the, the Trail of Tears, uh, this massive movement over the course of uh, the 1830s into the 1840s, when tens of thousands of these Native Americans uh, were, were forced to, uh, to vacate the, uh, the property that was historically their own. Now, you have here the journal of John Phelps from the Second Seminole War. Yeah, John uh, W. Phelps was a, a young officer. He had just graduated from the U.S. Military Academy in 1836. The Second Seminole War started in late 1835, so he uh, was sent directly to Florida. He was attached with the 4th Artillery Unit that was headquartered in Pensacola, uh, and they conducted a number of operations throughout the Gulf Coast. He was in Florida for most of the latter part of 1836, uh, and then in May of, uh, of 1837, his uh, regiment was actually sent north to northern Georgia. And that's where this particular journal really picks up. So it really begins with his last few days in Florida. Uh, he talks a little bit about the, the weather and the climate. And unlike a lot of soldiers, he actually really enjoyed the beautiful sunsets and the uh, natural flora and fauna. Uh, like a lot of officers at the time, he was very well educated. So he had studied a lot of the uh, classical literature, and, and we, we see that kind of reflected in his writing. Uh, here we have a passage about a dog <laughs> by the name of Gopher. And this dog was uh, captured when they captured a few of the Seminole Indians in late 1836. Uh, and the dog kind of took a liking to a lot of the regular soldiers. Uh, and he talks about uh, the soldiers who were willing to, to carry him uh, by the nape of his neck across a stream and, and would gladly give their life uh, for this poor little dog that they named Gopher, who they now actually uh, took with him up to northern Georgia. But what's also fascinating, as we read through the journal, you kind of see this evolution in Phelps's mindset, how he understands the plight or, or at, at the very least empathizes with uh, some of the native peoples that, uh, that they're removing. If we read here just briefly a passage, this is dated Friday, June 22nd, 1838. Uh, Phelps writes, quote, Upwards of a thousand Indians passed by today from Fort Hembry, 18 miles to the east of this, where they had been collected. Some few had their ponies and small quantities of luggage, but generally they were unencumbered, having left their all behind. When I saw them, men, women, and children, moving along through the valley towards the far west, leaving the scenes which had been so long in their possession, never to witness them again, abandoning their all without casting a look behind, I could not but think that some fearful retribution would yet come upon us from this much-impugned race. The scene seemed to me more like a distempered dream or something worthy of the dark ages than like a present reality, but it was too true, unquote. So we kind of see this evolution as Phelps, again, is involved. Uh, he's a professional soldier, and in the military academy, they learn about tactics and about great military battles, and they learn about Napoleon and the ancient wars. Uh, and here he is in, in the southeastern United States forcing these relatively poor individuals from their native lands, and, and it's kind of hard for him, I think, to rectify what's happening in reality and, and uh, kind of understand that this is the reality of military life. What happened to Phelps after he left Florida? Well, he had an interesting and, and fairly long career. So uh, he's in Georgia, involved in Creek uh, Cherokee removal, I'm sorry. 
then comes back down to Florida, spends another year. At this point, uh, Colonel Zachary Taylor is now in charge, and Zachary Taylor would go on to become uh, president of the United States, but he gained his original notoriety at the Battle of Loxahatchee in Florida. He serves under Zachary Taylor. Uh, He's then sent uh, north to a number of other campaigns. He's actually involved in the Mormon expedition or the Utah Wars out in the western United States. Uh, He eventually relinquishes his commission. Uh, He rises to the rank of first lieutenant. He then relinquishes his commission just before the beginning of the Civil War. He moved back to uh, his native Vermont. Uh, But then in 1861, of course, we have the outbreak of the American Civil War. He's called back into service, and he serves gallantly for the Union Army uh, in the southeastern United States. In fact, he's involved in the taking of uh, New Orleans uh, in 1862. Uh, But he again relinquishes his command because Phelps was uh, also an abolitionist. And in between his time, uh, in between commissions, he wrote quite a bit about uh, the abolitionist movement uh, and about slavery and and the rise of, of the South just prior to the Civil War. And as a as an officer, he's now a uh, brigadier general. And uh, a, a number of runaway slaves are uh, trying to take refuge with uh, the Union commanders when he's in the South. And what he decided to do was form companies. Any military-age man, he would form these black regiments, and then he was going to arm them, and he would uh, you know, use them as soldiers to fight the Confederates. His commanding officer refused, and uh, because he would not arm these former slaves, uh, he relinquished his command again uh, and finally left the Army in 1864, never to return. But later in 1880, after going back to Vermont, he is nominated for U.S. president by what's known, what was known as the American Party. And this was a later iteration of the anti-Masonic Party. And what's kind of interesting is that one of their key platform points was establishment of, of civil rights for Native Americans. Uh, so at this point in the 1880s, we're right in the middle of the Western Plains Wars, which are kind of capturing national attention. And given Phelps's past, you know, his, his role in, in Indian removal in the Southeast, that must have colored his understanding, at least, of the rights of Native peoples later on in 1880. Now, of course, this was a third party. He didn't, uh, was, not nomina- was nominated but did not win the presidency. Uh, but it kind of shows his evolution as a soldier uh, and as an American citizen uh, over the course of, uh, of his lifetime. Interesting as always. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Early settlers in Florida were plagued by mosquitoes. Along with the development of air conditioning, mosquito control made the state much more attractive to potential residents. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has more. Mosquitoes have occupied a place in Florida history that has determined both the way in which people have chosen where to live and how they've lived. In the late 19th and early 20th century, the broods of mosquitoes that would come off off the Indian River were of biblical proportions. Early settlers described dark, undulating clouds of mosquitoes that would rise and come across the landscape and descend upon them and bring a kind of pestilence that made their lives miserable and made them think fondly of their northern and midwestern homes that they'd abandoned for the Sunshine State. That was Dr. Gordon Patterson, a professor at Florida Institute of Technology. 
he talks to me about mosquito control in Florida. Here, he tells me about the early methods to rid mosquitoes from the Florida landscape. Some of the earliest accounts of how Native Americans and early Floridian settlers coped with the uh, mosquito problem seem comical to us today. Jonathan Dickinson, who was one of the first people to write about mosquitoes when his ship crashed at the end of the 17th century near what's now uh, Jupiter, Florida, described how the native population buried themselves in the sand to prevent being bitten by mosquitoes. Native Americans would sometimes use fires and stay within the smoke of them. Early Florida residents tried to find a, perhaps the first green solution, or I should say brown, they would take palm fronds and weave them into what became a ubiquitous household item, the mosquito beater, uh, which was used to both brush the mosquitoes off and I suspect from some of the accounts of old Floridians, perhaps to uh, strike at the mosquito and strike themselves in the head, just simply to uh, remove the blight from themselves. Science soon brought some new solutions to the mosquito problem. In the early 20th century, as part, I think, of what was the general movement of progressivism, uh, there came uh, into being the notion that perhaps collectively something could be done about mosquitoes. And in the early 1890s, the chief entomologist for what was the United States Department of Agriculture, a man named Lillian Ossian Howard, made some early experiments. He wasn't the first person to do it, but he was one of the first to write scientific articles about the use of oil as a means to uh, kill mosquito larvae. Uh, the oil doesn't suffocate them. We've learned that later. But what it does is it causes a reaction within their trachea and causes them to die in their, one of their four instars. So beginning in the early 20th century, you found all across the United States the use of oil, which is a chemical means of controlling mosquitoes. Dr. Patterson tells me about some other popular methods for mosquito control. In Florida uh, and in some other places, it was discovered that a tiny fish of the genus Gambusia affinis, it's now simply called the mosquito fish, is a predaceous uh, consumer of mosquito larvae. And so fish, what was a biological means of control, were introduced into the waters which were breeding mosquitoes. And so mosquito control began, in a sense, uh, with uh, um, two different approaches, one a chemical uh, and the other a biological. And in a sense, uh, during the first 30 or 40 years of the 20th century, those were the only means of approaching mosquito control with the exception of the final, and that's a mechanical means of control, and that was putting up screens to keep mosquitoes out of the house. The management of the mosquito population really accelerated through the introduction of the chemical DDT. It wasn't until the mid-1930s and early 1940s that it became possible to think about killing adult mosquitoes on the wings. This is called adulticiding. And it grew out of a series of chemical discoveries, which probably reached their high point in 1942 when a small shipment of a chemical called Gesserol arrived in Orlando, Florida. It was taken to a quasi-secret USDA laboratory on Paramore Street, where USDA researchers were involved in looking for toxicants against lice and mosquitoes because of the Allied forces fighting in the South Pacific and in Europe. Gesserol, we now call DDT. And the first tests of DDT 
out in the, uh, uh, the landscape were made in Cocoa Beach, Florida in uh, the winter of 1942 and 1943. The toxicant properties of this Miracle dust, as it was called, the crystals, the white crystals, uh, were uh, prodigious. 99.9% of the uh, larvae died. That was Dr. Gordon Patterson. I interviewed him and others for the podcast series, A History of Central Florida. You can find it online and at iTunes. I'm Robert Castanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can join us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. You can also get Florida Frontiers through your favorite podcast provider. Don't miss the new television series version of Florida Frontiers, available on great PBS affiliates including WUCF Orlando, WJCT Jacksonville, WFSU Tallahassee, and WPBT South Florida. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.